1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Scott Kaufman about his biography of America's 38th president, entitled Ambition, Pragmatism, and Party, a Political Biography of Gerald R. Ford. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
0: Uh, well, let's see here. I am a, an historian. I'm chair of the Department of History at Francis Marion University, where I have been since 2001. Uh Born in Louisiana, raised in Kansas um, moved around to a few jobs until I found this tenure track position at a wonderful university and i've I've been there ever since uh married for six years to a wonderful woman from Boston, and I couldn't be happier
1: <laughs> so uh what was it that led you to political history as a field?
0: Well, it's funny. I started off as a diplomatic historian and I'm still a diplomatic historian uh but you really can't um separate, uh, politics from, from diplomacy. Uh, and I've gotten more and more involved in politics. I think in part through my father, my father is a, a, a retired professional historian himself. Uh, he and I, uh, did a biography, well, i done a biography, a, a work on the revision, a revision of his, uh, work on the presidency of James Earl Carter Jr. President Carter. And, um, that kind of got me involved in political history as well. But I, I try to go into different areas. I've done work in, in uh, some military history. I still do diplomatic history. And I have a new project I'm working on that I'll, I'll talk
1: about later. Was it your work on uh, the Jimmy Carter book that led you to this biography of Gerald Ford? Uh,
0: yes and no. Um, a number of years ago, I guess it was around 2011, I was asked by... Um, Wiley Blackwell by by an editor there named Peter Coveney to do a – to edit a series of historiographical essays on Carter and Ford. And I think part of that – the reason why he came to me is because I had done quite a bit of work on Jimmy Carter. But I I figured that if I'm going to do an edited – do these edited uh, essays – I'm not writing the essays. Other people were, but if I'm going to be editing these essays, I should know something about Gerald Ford as well. And that got me into doing background research on him and a realization that there was really no, um, at least in my opinion, no comprehensive biography or political biography of him. And that led me to write this book.
1: Now, the title of your book is Ambition, Pragmatism, and Party. And as you make it clear, that title encapsulates your argument about Ford. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that before talking a bit more about Ford's life itself.
0: Sure. Uh, I believe that those three words uh, do really address Ford's political life. Um, The first one, ambition, refers to just the fact that he was a very ambitious person. He always wanted to climb the ladder of influence. In in Boy Scouts, he became an Eagle Scout. In football, he wanted to become a starter on on the varsity football team in high school and a starter in college, which he did. In the navy, he wanted to rise up, the, rise up the ranks and did so. In politics, he wanted to become Speaker of the House, and even though he never achieved that goal, he of course did eventually become president. And wanted to remain president by running for election in his own right. And then, he, after leaving the presidency, he still wanted to. He was still ambitious. Uh, considered running for the presidency again, and then the vice presidency. Uh, when that fell, when that didn't pan out, he still sought. Uh, He's still ambitious. He wanted to be on corporate boards, for instance. Um, Party refers to the fact that he was a lifelong Republican, uh, a member of the moderate wing of the party, but loyal to his party, even if it meant changing his position on the issues. And that brings up the last uh, theme, which is pragmatism. I argue that Ford was not an ideologue. He was someone who was willing to reach across party lines, whether it be in Congress whether it be as president or even in the post-presidency. And so those three words, ambition, party, and pragmatism, I think sum up Ford's political life.
1: As you present his life, those themes really come out and not just in terms of his politics. I was thinking, for example, when his uh, decision to uh, accept the responsibility of being vice president, it really reflected a a combination of it, not just his ambition in some ways it, it as you explained, it thwarted his ambition, but it also was a, a, a an acknowledgement of what needed to be done and it was sort of mm-hmm. a, a, a loyal service that he did. But I was wondering if you could take us back a bit and explain who Ford was a, a, as a child, his his early years because you, you portray a, a person who had a, a very uh, tum, uh, who came from a very tumultuous family background.
0: Absolutely, and that childhood in, in, in some ways – well, many ways, of course, made him who he was. Uh, he was born in 1913 to Leslie Lynch King Jr. – I'm sorry, senior. Uh, he was named Leslie Lynch King Jr., and I kind of – I find it kind of funny that if he had not – if other had not remarried, we might have had a President King, which, which is kind of interesting if you think about it. But anyway, born a Leslie Lynch King Sr. and his mother and, and Leslie, Leslie's wife, Dorothy, uh, Leslie Lynch King Sr. was a mentally and physically abusive husband, uh, and it reached the point, uh, reached the point that he, he threatened not only his wife's life but his newborn babies. And, it, and uh, Dorothy finally realized that for her own welfare as well as that of her new, newly born child, she had to escape him. And so she divorced – she fled uh, her house, fled uh, Lively Lynch King Sr., uh, and eventually divorced him, which is really quite significant if one thinks about it because not only was divorce stigmatized, but it was especially frowned upon at this time if a child was involved. But again, she felt she had to do it for for the well-being of herself and her child, Uh, eventually made her way to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where she met um, Gerald R. Ford the person who President Ford, at least until his teenage life, teenage years, believed was his biological father. And these two individuals, Dorothy and Gerald Ford, uh, really had a major impact on him. They were loving parents. They were strict. They were religiously devout. Um, And his father was also an inspiration to Gerald Ford Jr. because he was someone who was who worked very hard, who believed in uh, not turning the government for assistance. And that really affected Ford's belief that people should try to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps rather than relying on the government for assistance.
1: And that is especially significant in light of the context, which is Ford's growing up in uh, the late 1920s, early 1930s. You have the Great Depression. So it's not Mm -hmm. just a matter of a principle that is easy to express when times are good even during the great depression when millions are turning to uh, federal aid projects state uh, relief projects uh, uh gerald ford senior doesn't do that
0: that's correct and it's interesting his, his father well again i going to be careful here it's, it's, of course his adopted father but the person he always believed was his father and would always see as his father uh, gerald ford senior Opened up his own business, uh, began running his own paint and varnish company, opened it up in October of 1929, just before the crash. Uh, And yet during the Depression, he refused to accept government assistance and did everything he possibly could to keep the business going, which he did, even if it meant, for instance, not taking uh, pay or at least cutting his own pay for the survival of the business. And that had a powerful impact on, on his son, well, his adopted son who, again, saw this as, hey, you can do it without government help.
1: It was something that uh, Gerald Ford Jr. also had to live during the Depression because, as you describe, he gets an education at a time when that required an exceptional amount of commitment on his part.
0: Absolutely. Um, I mean, he had to get a job. He had to scrimp. But he also, he freely admitted that luck played on his side as well. The fact that he had a a principal at South High School in Grand Rapids who saw to it to help him get a scholarship, uh, that he was able to use people he knew to pull strings, uh, help help him uh, get to the University of Michigan, and the University of Michigan uh, was able to um, scrimp and scrape, but also able to pay his bills. Um, he was really someone who tried to do things as much on his own as possible, but at the same time, uh, did have individuals willing to help him.
1: He, You described one of the important forms of contact uh, in terms of making these connections, was his uh, experiences and his uh, in relationships as an athlete with his teammates, with his coaches. Yes. And, and as you point out later in the book, and we'll be getting to this a little bit later on, is, is that this gets this image uh, of, you know, with, with the image of, of Gerald Ford is that Gerald Ford was this, you know, he was this very athletic person. He was very involved in, 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 uh, in, in football, especially. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about that and how it shaped his life in various ways.
0: Well, uh, it was his father, not as a biological father, his adopted father, introduced him to sports, including football. And Ford came to love football. Um, he liked he liked football because it was a team sport. It required people to cooperate with one another. Um, it taught him that even if you lose, don't give up. Pick yourself up and try again. Um, and that also that affected him in his political career because he realized that just because things don't always go well for you doesn't mean you should give up. And he also realized that you can't do things on your own. You have to be willing to work as part of a team. And that, too, was something that, that really influenced him in politics and I think helps explain his, his pragmatism.
1: What drew him to his uh, career in the law? Was, it, was he thinking about politics even then, or were there other elements of the law that interested him?
0: That's one of the things that is still not entirely clear. Some people suggest that he was looking at law even as early, at least politics, as early as high school. Uh, Betty Ford argued that um, there there may be some truth to that, but it also seems to be. I think what's more likely is that it was his father who who encouraged him uh, to think about law school and. That was something that did grab Ford's attention, but he also began to see law as a segue into politics uh, because it would allow him to make connections that would uh, help him as he moved in, into politics. He certainly had become interested in politics by, 19, by about 1940, and, and again, law would give him kind of that background, that knowledge, those connections to help him uh, develop a career in politics.
1: One of the uh, points you described in the book that I thought was especially interesting was how it wasn't just a matter that he went into law because he had no other options. You described that he was being approached about going into football professionally. And I was mm-hmm. fascinated by how you broke down that choice for Ford and what that re- revealed about uh, both his life at that time and also how he prioritized and made decisions.
0: Well, it reflects his ambition. Uh, here's an individual who had – who was approached by two professional football teams, the Detroit Lions and the Green Bay Packers, who offered <coughs> him – it was twenty twenty hundred dollars a year uh, to play football, which was a substantial amount of money. And it was more than the $2,400 a year he was offered as a coach at Yale University where he was offered after he graduated from Michigan.
1: You also described but, the – oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: <laughs> no, I was going to say, but to Ford – The problem was that if he were to have gone into professional football, A, it would have meant going a different track than he was thinking about doing, which is law. But B, if he were to get injured at any point during the year, he could be cut and then he would end up with nothing. So, for those two reasons, he decided the $2,400 made more sense because it gets him to Yale and allows him to continue, as as he hoped, continue down the road toward uh, getting that degree and that law degree.
1: I was thinking. I was about to say that that also uh, reflects not just that ambition, though, but that pragmatism. That, that was the choice of, given where he was. Yes. It, although you mentioned he always regretted not having explored that option, it was the more pragmatic choice to uh, go proceed uh, with that career in, in law and go to Yale than it was to take the chance of going into football.
0: Absolutely, I am. Um... You have to consider your options, weigh your options. And he decided of the options he had available to him. The one that made the most sense to him professionally, but also personally, was
1: Yale. So he goes to Yale. He graduates. What what is his early law career like and and, and what uh, changes it?
0: Well, I mean, he he graduates Yale. And this is something that's, that's kind of important here. And here's another example of his ambitiousness. While he's at Yale, he falls in love. He meets a woman, an aspiring model named Phyllis Brown. The two of them hit it off. And she's also someone who had an impact on him. She's the one who taught him to school. She's the one who would take him dancing. They would play tennis together. Uh, She really opened up a world for him. Uh, They would go to New York City quite often together. But when it came to choosing between her and going back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and practicing law, um he chose Grand Rapids. She didn't want to go to Grand Rapids. She wanted to continue continue her modeling career in New York. And so when had a choice between love and law, he decided to go back go back home. Um, he goes back home to Grand Rapids, opens up uh, a law uh, law practice with uh, a buddy of his, uh, Phil B- uh, Buchen. and uh, the two of them, Begin to make a little money, but then, of course, World War II intervenes, and Ford decides I need to give this up and serve in the military.
1: Was it just the call of service, or that that was drawing him into it? Was there uh, any sort of uh, you know, calculation behind his choice?
0: From what I've gathered, and from what I've read, and really, and from from the interviews I've read as well, um, this was really him believing that. It it was his obligation to serve his country. Um, I didn't see any evidence that he, he saw this as a definitive way of getting back into politics, although it may have been the back of his mind. The key thing to him was, like many Americans, the Japanese had
1: attacked Pearl Harbor, and he feels that he needs to serve his country, and that's what he wants to do. So, what was his military service like? W- where did he serve, in in, in, in what capacity?
0: Uh, he went to the U.S. Navy, and eventually, originally, he was assigned to do a, to a training program. <coughs> um, he didn't want that; he wanted to get into the action, and was eventually assigned to the white carrier Monterey, where he saw um, saw saw action in a number of battles, but also um, saw action. When the Monterey was part of the fleet that got hit by Typhoon Cobra, that sank uh, that damaged a number of ships and almost sank his ship. Uh, in fact, Ford was one of the people who played a key role in, in uh, stopping the fire on the Monterey and saving the ship from from going under.
1: Uh, was he a uh, he? He wasn't a pilot though. Uh, what role did he serve on no. the ship? No.
0: No, he ended up he, – he was assigned as a gunner, gunnery officer and then worked his way up using connections. One thing he learned is you make connections to people. You find people who are in positions of influence, cozy up to them, and that can help you climb up the ladder of influence. Well, he cozied up to the captain of the Monterey, a guy named Hunt, and used that – those connections. And also football played a role here too because Hunt liked football. Uh, used those connections to eventually become navigation officer on the Monterey.
1: So Ford has this successful uh, period of military service. And when the war is over, what does he then do with his life?
0: He goes back to Grand Rapids, uh, plans on um, going back, goes back into law, but uh, is now thinking about uh, continuing his pursuit of politics. Again, he'd been interested in this since at, since at least nineteen forty. Uh, … but now that he's back, he he does work in a law firm. Uh, the one that he would opened with his his buddy had uh, been forced to close. But his buddy had gotten – Phil Buchan had gotten a job with a, a law firm run by a guy named Julius Amberg, and uh, Ford began to work for Amberg as well. Um, and so he begins to work for Amberg doing, doing law but is also now beginning to look very seriously at that career in politics and would eventually run for the house representatives from his district in Michigan uh, in 1948.
1: Now, you have this period of time where a lot of young men newly new from the war go into politics and of course the uh, one example that is Uh, Similar in some respects is Richard Nixon doing the same thing, serving the Pacific, going uh, going into office. But Nixon, when he runs in 1946, he runs against a Democrat, Jerry Voorhees. You describe uh, Gerald Ford running against a Republican in 1948. Uh, What was going on there and and, and what led Ford to decide to challenge a Republican incumbent in an office who seemed fairly well entrenched?
0: Oh, there are two things. Number one, and this ties back to why Ford uh, became interested in going to politics in the first place. Back in 1940, Ford had wanted to serve the wendell Wilkie campaign, uh, but the problem was that if you wanted to serve the campaign um, in any kind of significant capacity, you had to get the support of a local party boss. Well, the local party boss in Grand Rapids was a man, a man named Frank McKay. And when Ford went to see McKay, he had to wait for about three hours to see McKay, and then when he finally got to see uh, the party boss, McKay spent just a couple of minutes with him and made it pretty clear he wanted nothing to do with Ford. And that left Ford with a very bad taste in his mouth, (coughs) and it just so happened that the incumbent uh, for the 5th District of Michigan, which is where Ford was going to be running, was a guy named Jockman who happened to be part of the McKay political machine… So that's one reason why he wants to run against the incumbent, Jockman, because he doesn't like John, the McCabe political machine. But the second reason is that Ford was transformed by World War II. Uh, he went into that war as an isolationist. He, in other words, he, he believed the United States should limit its role in world affairs, but he came out of that war realizing that the United States could not do that. It had to play a greater role in the world, and so he became an internationalist. The problem for him was that Jonkman was an isolationist, and he felt that therefore Jonkman was out of touch with the larger world situation, with the threats that the United States was facing now that the war was over. And so for that reason, too, he felt he had to run against the incumbent.
1: He runs against Jonkman, and he wins. But as you described, this isn't the only momentous event that's happening in his life during this time, because (laughs) what else is going on?
0: Well, he's met another he's met a somebody. Uh his mother Dorothy said to him uh not long after he got back from from the war, uh, you need to meet somebody. You're not getting any younger, you know. And uh ended up uh meeting uh this woman by the name of um Betty well Betty Warren was her married name. It was Betty Bloomer was her original name. Uh she was on the on the verge of getting a divorce and uh from from a husband who um was an alcoholic and who didn't, who was always gone quite a bit. Um, Ford fell for her and she thought he was crazy because she was going to be a divorcee. He didn't care. He wanted to marry her, but he made it very clear given that he was coming from a fairly conservative district that they they would have to wait to get married until the fall of 1948. He didn't explain why, but the reason was that  … … he knew that if word got out that he was going to be marrying a divorcee, that people in his district might not support him in the Republican primary against Jockman. So best to keep things quiet, run against Jockman, beat him, and then once he beat Jonkman, then he knew that he was home free because he would have the support of the Republicans, of the, of the Republicans in his district whether he married a divorcee or not.
1: Your book is described in its subtitle as a political biography, and yet you uh, discuss over the course of it their marriage and the role that she plays in his life. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, explain a bit their relationship, their marriage, uh, before we move on to discussing his political career.
0: Sure. Um, And a lot of it also depends on what period we're talking about. But For for much of it, we're talking about an individual who truly loved her husband. Um, This was – Gerald and Betty Ford very much loved one another. But one of the things that Ford – one of Ford's sister-in-laws had told Betty was, you don't need to worry about Jerry getting involved with another woman. His work will be the other woman. And that, I think, is a telling comment because Ford being ambitious – (coughs) Being a workaholic was someone who spent a lot of time on his work. Uh, He would spend as many as 280 days away from home. And so Betty, as much as she loved her husband, also felt abandoned at times. Uh, She had an absentee husband. They would eventually have four children, but he was an absentee father. And that was hard on her. It was hard on, on the children. Uh, she herself began to turn to an outlet, which was alcohol. She also began to take uh, painkillers for a back ailment she had and became addicted to those. So it's a marriage that was one of love, but also one where in, in, many, in many respects – Ford Gerald Ford was really oblivious to the effect that his absenteeism was having on her and on their children.
1: He really did seem very committed to it. Uh, You describe he's living, he's he's uh, representing a a very safe district, and yet he, you describe how he's always going back there. He's campaigning. It's Mm -hmm. it's, it's very admirable in in the sense that he's committed to his job, Uh, but he really puts a lot of work into it that he might not necessarily have had to do if he just wanted to be uh, a representative uh, in in a safe district.
0: He had a slogan uh, that he he once, I think it was in his memoir. He wrote the the harder you work, the luckier you are. And I think he really believed that, that if you work really hard, then luck will come along. Uh, Things will go well for you. And so you've got to be a workaholic. You've got to put the hours into it. Uh, Even if you know that your district is safe, you still got to pretend you're the underdog and go in there and do everything you possibly can to garner votes. So he would spend a lot of time away from home, on the stump, back in his district, uh, doing what he could to not only secure his own seat, but also to continue his ambition.  … Uh, … his ambitiousness, and, and uh, his ambition certainly by his third term in office was to become Speaker of the House. But if you're going to do that, you need to make sure that not only do you hold on your own, to your own seat, but you've got to do everything you can to help the Republicans capture the House represent- of House Representatives, which for much of the time he was in Congress they did not have.
1: Could you explain a bit this career that he has in the House uh, during those first uh, that first decade to a decade and a half? You, you describe uh, his, his rise during that in, in the context of the politics of the time. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon the work he was doing and uh, his position on the issues of the day.
0: Sure. Um, he, he, here's where luck comes into play. Uh, he wants to <coughs> go down to powerful committees, and through a stroke of luck, uh, he was able to get into the Appropriations Committee of the House, which, of course, is one of the most powerful committees in the House of Representatives. Um, he is going to be – he stays on that committee for uh, the majority of his career in the House. <coughs> um, he proved himself to be a moderate Republican. Um, what I mean by that is he is not someone who, who – he's not a member of the conservative wing where he believes that, for instance, the government should largely stay out of – of economic matters, for instance. Um, but he's also not a liberal Republican where he is going to be fully supportive of government programs like those that come out of the New Deal of the Great Society. He's kind of in between. Um, what this means in terms of policymaking is he was strongly supportive of defense programs. He was strongly supportive of foreign aid programs, programs that he believed would help the United States maintain influence around the world, and helped contain the spread of communism. But he was not someone who was willing to give the presidents of the day everything they wanted when it came to those programs. There were times when he was prepared to restrict spending in some cases, particularly if he believed it was wasteful spending. When it came to social programs, he was generally less supportive because he felt that social programs like Medicare Uh, … encouraged people to live off the government dole. But again, he wasn't entirely opposed to them. He did believe that there were some social programs that were necessary to help Americans. Uh, He was willing to consider, for instance, an alternative to the Medicare program first proposed by John F. Kennedy, except in his proposal, the states would have been given more power to oversee the program in the federal government. Uh, when it came to civil rights and the environment, uh, and the environment, by the way, is one issue that really f- few people have talked about when it comes to Ford. Um, he was more progressive on those issues, on civil rights and the environment, but not as progressive as others. When it came down to it, he he was supportive of civil rights, he was supportive of the environment, but he believed once again that the state should have um, play the prime role in in protecting civil rights in the environment. So really what it comes down to is, is someone who leans faith, heavily towards states' rights, but also realizes the federal government does need to play a role in, in certain respects.
1: Was it his ideological positions which allowed him to become uh, the House Minority Leader by the mid-1960s, or were there additional factors at play?
0: I think there are several things. Um his ideological positions do help. I mean he demonstrates himself a pragmatist who uh who is willing to listen to all sides, who is willing to take the positions on the issues that he believes most reflect his his own moderate views, but also views that he feels that from his own moderate views will be best for the country. But 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 his personality plays a role as well. Um, one thing that was said about Gerald Ford, and this something we can talk about later concerns his intelligence. This is an individual who was not quick to, to an answer. He was someone who liked to hear all sides of a, of a of a topic and mull things over before coming to a decision and that also in, in one respect, it could infuriate people. Um, one of, his, one of his good friends in Congress, Melvin Laird, once said, and I'm quoting here, Jerry doesn't catch on as rapidly as he should to the political significance of an event or issue. Once he understands it, there's no problem, but it does take him time. So he's not someone who's quick to an answer, but he is someone who's willing to listen to all sides, and that endeared him. Not just to moderates, but to liberals and conservatives in the party as well, because they knew he was someone who was approachable, someone who would be willing to listen to them, even if he didn't necessarily agree with everything they had to say.
1: Another factor that I, I think comes out in your uh, section on that is the generational divide. How when he uh we see this leadership challenge emerging in the early nineteen sixties against Charlie Halleck, the uh, House Minority Leader at the time, and yes. and Leslie Ahrens, is that you're you're talking about the this leadership, which is they're in their sixties, they've been like elect- their their service dates back to before World War two, and ford is is part of this coming generation, not just him but Mel Lair, Donald Rumsfeld, and so forth
0: that's part of it, yes, um you're right uh, they, there is this older generation there. Uh, who these younger Republicans, these young Turks, as they were called, felt really didn't represent the party. But one of the things that that bothered Ford and other young Turks is that they felt that the, the old leadership um, really didn't have any ideas. Um, Ford once said, we can't just simply say no, no, no. we got to be able to provide alternative suggestions to those being put forward by the administration. And the problem for the the young Turks was that the older generation would just simply say, no, 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 never providing the alternatives. And as a result, people would look at the Republican Party and say, why should we support these guys? What reason is there for us to continue down this road? So in order to get people to support the party, in order to – get the Republican ideas out, they had to have new leadership, had to have – and they also had to have individuals who understood how to get the message out. Uh, Jokes were made about Charlie Halleck, for instance, and how he appeared on television. You want somebody who is younger, more vibrant, someone who will get the base excited, and to the young Turks, people like Gerald Ford could do that.
1: So Gerald Ford becomes minority leader And he's minority leader during this very momentous time in congressional history. It's the Great Society. uh, Lyndon Johnson as president is introducing a lot of legislation. What is Gerald Ford uh, doing about this? And also, how is he responding to the foreign policy issues that are also coming up uh, during this period as well?
0: Well, he was by no means a fan of the Great Society. Uh, again, he felt that the Great Society <coughs> program encouraged individuals to live, live off of help from the government, uh, and he believed that alternatives had to be offered. The Republicans offered something called the Opportunity Crusade, which they thought would do a better job in the Great Society uh, by um, relying more on the private sector to provide assistance for, for people rather than the public sector. Um, this is not to say that he opposed everything that Lyndon Johnson was doing. He did support the environmental programs that Johnson was encouraging and Lady Bird Johnson was encouraging. Uh, he did support civil rights legislation uh, promoted by Johnson, although again Ford would have preferred really to have the states uh, have more say in that, that legislation in the federal government, but he did support the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, but again, when it comes to the social programs, he does have issues with them. When it comes to foreign policy, he was generally quite supportive of Lyndon Johnson's efforts uh, to contain communism, whether it be in the Dominican Republic or in Vietnam. His greatest concern, his greatest criticism of Johnson was he felt that Johnson prosecuted the war the wrong way. To, to Ford, the way you should prosecute the war is not by sending ground troops to Vietnam, to South Vietnam but rather use uh, American naval and air support um, to blockade uh, North Vietnam and to bomb North Vietnam uh, into submission, that those those methods alone would do a far better job than sending draftees into a war who don't want to be there and to only stay for a year, or a little more than a year, and then leave. Does his...
1: Uh role change at all uh, once Nixon succeeds uh, Johnson as president? Does he have to do more in, in, in terms of blind support of the administration or is he somewhat critical?
0: Um, he has to be more supportive and he has to change his position on issues. Uh, one of the best examples of this, well actually a few examples of it, but um, one of them concerns China. Uh, Ford had always been very critical of communist China well, all of a sudden, here comes Richard Nixon, who says, "I want to improve relations with China." and so Ford says, "Okay, fine uh, on panama he he um had been very critical of the idea of the he, he'd always said time and time again that the United States should hold hold on the Panama Canal and so when negotiations began under Lyndon Johnson that would possibly turn the canal over to Panama, Ford said, "No way." Well, here comes the Nixon administration. Henry Kissinger begins to negotiate a um a uh, a treaty that would potentially turn the canal over to panama and ford has to kind of backtrack on on that position um so he, he also would support nixon on, on programs like a family assistance program that nixon promoted which in some ways was not dissimilar to some of the great society programs. But to to Ford, I've got a fellow Republican in office, out of party loyalty, I'm going to support him. So here's a guy who's changing his position on the issues because he believes he has to in the name of party unity and, and loyalty.
1: One of the things that also seems to change with Nixon's election is that his uh, ambition of attaining the speakership seems to be getting a little bit more distant. The, Demo- the Republicans don't do well enough in 1970 no. or in 72. And you describe how he's beginning to think about retirement. And then, of course, yes. his life changes. I was wondering if you could explain ex- exactly what happened there.
0: Sure. Um, Ford, of course, had been hoping and praying that he would finally become House Speaker. And time and time again, it hadn't happened. Well, in 1972, he thought, "Okay, this is our shot." The Democrats nominated uh, George McGovern to run as their nominee, as, a, as their as their nominee for the presidency. Um, he ran a horrific campaign, a horrible campaign. Nixon trounced him, winning 49 states to one, in one of the greatest landslides in American political history. Yet the Democrats retain control of the House. And Ford thought to himself, my gosh, if the Republicans cannot retain, cannot gain control of the House, even at a time when the Democrats put up a horrible candidate, then I don't ever see myself becoming House Speaker. So he decides, or he tells his wife, Betty, I think what we'll do is four years from now, uh, Richard Nixon will have finished his second term in office. I think at that point I'm going to retire, call it quits, and and uh, enjoy the rest of my life. And, and she's thrilled, by the way. She is so happy about this because she felt I'm finally going to have my husband back. But then as you point out in your question, amazing things happen. <laughs> Spiro, Spiro Agnew is forced to resign for taking bribes. So Richard Nixon... Uh, has to find someone to replace Agnew, and nominates Ford for the post. Uh, Ford, out of party loyalty, believing that it's good for the party, but also believing he wants to help out a friend, a person he considers a friend, Richard Nixon, um, and because he feels it to be good for the country, accepts the nomination and, of course, is, a, is appointed by Congress. And, and to give you an idea again of just how unhappy Betty was about this, she thought, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm going to lose my husband. Ford said to her, don't worry, vice presidents don't do anything. But the fact that she was worried became clear when after he got the, after he was confirmed, um, a man was nominated, um, Richard Nixon shook hands with the Fords and said to Betty, congratulations. And her response was, congratulations or condolences. <laughs> she was not happy about this at all. Uh, of course he it becomes gets confirmed as the vice president and then within a year Nixon's forced to resign and now we have president ford
1: i i find that uh, ford's expectation that the vice president's do nothing really shows the degree to which he was really not anticipating just where Watergate was going to go because uh, when ford's uh, Chosen 1973, the Watergate investigation is already underway. You have the he, you have the hearings in the Senate. You have the uh, the special prosecutor soon to be appointed, and, and and yet he doesn't really think that far ahead. And yet you have in in so many other books that narrative that Ford was was uh, somebody the Democrats could accept because they envisioned him as a potential president.
0: It's interesting, Ford when he was gosh this was been back in middle school.
1: Uh,
0: came to the conclusion that while there might be – while people might seem bad, he believed there had to be good in them somewhere, Um, and that made him naive at times. So when Nixon is – when the investigation of Watergate looks more and more like Nixon could be involved, Ford, loyal to his friend but also rather naive, Trust Nixon. When Nixon says, don't worry, I'm not involved. I'm not involved. I have no part in this whatsoever. And it would not be until very, very late in the scandal, just before Nixon resigned, that Ford realized just how involved Nixon was. But you're right. Uh, for Democrats, um, they saw – they could see the writing on the wall. They could see that, for, that Nixon was in trouble. And so when Nixon nominated Ford… Um, someone who they saw as a rather weak candidate to begin with, but, but at the same time, someone who they saw as honest and trustworthy, someone who had experience, who could take the reins of government. They believed that Nixon had written his own death warrant. And in fact, he
1: had. So Ford becomes president in August of 1974. And you describe this transition period where he's making what is really an unprecedented adjustment in American history. I was wondering if you could take us a bit into some of the challenges he faced in those uh, early weeks and months and the, and, why, and and why, some of the decisions that he made in response to them.
0: Well, uh, let's start with some small stuff. Maybe that seems so small looking back on it, but uh, <laughs> one example of, of the challenges he faced, and I'll go to some of the more serious things here in a minute, it, it was his own home phone number. Uh, he, as vice president, he had kept his home phone number. He was living in Alexandria, Virginia, kept his home phone number People, case people wanted to contact him. Well, this this happens so quickly that he becomes president. His phone number was still listed in the white pages, and it, it <laughs> and the, 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 he had to be told you've got to get a new phone number so people aren't bothering you now that you're president of the United States. So he had to take care of that. Uh, of course, he can't get into the White House immediately. The Nixons have to leave, so… The home in Alexandria becomes essentially the White House. The Secret Service is working there now. Um, Betty helped make sure the Secret Service had a a living quarter in in the garage so that they could do their job. Um, But once Ford is able to get into the White House, he he faces a number of challenges. Um, Keep in mind, this is someone who was not elected, so he doesn't have time between the election and his inauguration to figure out who the members of his cabinet are going to be, uh, decide what his vision for the country is going to be. So he's really thrown into it, and he has to deal with trying to find a way to to bring together not only his own staff members, but holdovers from the Nixon administration who don't necessarily get along. This is especially true with uh, the person who worked as Ford's chief of, well, his Ford speechwriter, um, Hartman, and um, on the one hand, and the people like Al Haig on the other, Nick, who was Nixon's chief of staff. So dealing with that was, was a very serious problem. Another serious problem was what is he going to do about Nixon? Um, is he going to pardon the guy? Is he going to let Nixon go to trial? What impact is that going to have on Ford's efforts to bring the nation, to get the nation to focus on other matters that he considers important, such as energy or the economy or foreign policy? So he has a whole variety of challenges to deal with, some seemingly small, others quite big. And handling those challenges was not always easy for him, and in some respects, he was his own worst enemy. Uh, a good example of this would be the fact that he was he was unwilling to he had a he was unwilling to make it really really clear that um the animosity at times between the Nixon holdovers and his own staff had he put aside for the welfare of the nation He thought some, some staffers said that he was just too nice, too unwilling to step in and say enough. And what ended up happening as a result of this is the media gets word that you've got this infighting in the white house going on. And so then the question becomes, question starts to be raised is Ford even in charge? Is he running? How's he running things? What's going to get done if the staff can't even agree among themselves?
1: It really is a fascinating challenge. the, the, the c- contrasting pulls of needing to show stability and and and, and continuity where it, it was valuable on the one hand, and at the other at the same time also being his own person, and 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 then of course when you have the 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 uh, pardon of Nixon, for which uh, he w- w- which dramatically changes perceptions of Ford as president, it, it really underscores the degree to which you still have that that lingering shadow that Ford really. Uh, was was uh, you know really which really no president had ever had to deal with.
0: I think this one should be said about this helps me come back to Ford and his family and and I'll I'll tie this to the pardon. Um, here's a guy who comes into office as as a popular president, someone who was going to take America out of the nightmare that had been uh, Watergate, and in fact he uses that term in his in his first speech to the nation. Um, here's a guy also who uh, gave the impression that he was an average Joe who raised an average American family. Um, he, he worked in his shirt sleeves. He cooked his own breakfast. Um, his favorite meal was pot roast or steak with red cabbage and a scoop of buttercup ice cream for dessert. He and his wife were an attractive couple with four attractive children, two of whom, Steve and Susan, still lived at home. They were God-fearing. They enjoyed sports. They enjoyed the outdoors. I mean, it really seemed like Gerald Ford was the all-American father of an all-American family,
1: the the, The kind of person who – I was going to say, the word that kept recurring to me as I was reading your descriptions of him is decent. And I was thinking about how that must have really mattered to Americans in in August of 1974.
0: Oh, sure. I mean – the, the credibility gap, the, the term we used – the term has been used to describe the distrust in government was really becoming big by this time. We have the, the Tet Offensive, 1968. Prior to that, Lyndon Johnson, the Johnson administration been telling Americans we're winning the war in Vietnam. The war will be over soon. The boys will be coming home. And the Tet Offensive happens, and it becomes clear this war is not going to be over soon, and Americans feel lied to. Then you have Watergate with Nixon telling the American people to their faces, I am not a crook. I am not involved in this. Turns out he was. So here comes this guy, Gerald Ford, assumes seems exactly not just all-American but decent, honest, a good person. But then the pardon happens a month after he takes office, and people began to speak of a conspiracy. Was there a deal? Did Ford – did Nixon say to Ford, look? I will resign. You can become president under the condition that after you become president, you give me a pardon. And it didn't matter whether there had been a deal or not. I mean there's no evidence that that deal had been made. What mattered were perceptions, and given the distrust that had been building in the, among many Americans of their elected officials, it seemed like this decent, honest person might just be something different. Um, it's interesting. Uh, one, one of Ford's aides said that after the pardon, it became hard for Ford to talk about anything else. And given the so many anything else's he had to talk about, whether it be energy or the economy or foreign policy, I mean, that pardon really hurt his image and it would continue to haunt him through the remainder of his, of his tenure in office.
1: I was wondering if you could explain some of those other things that he was dealing with as president. Oh, my gosh, so many of them. Um,
0: (laughs) Let's talk about foreign policy, for instance. Uh, The United States is in the midst of withdrawing from Vietnam. Ford is trying to get Congress to give more funding to the South Vietnamese government at a time when Congress has no intention of doing so. And so Ford has to oversee the last Americans, last U.S. troops being taken out of Vietnam. Not long after that, the Migwes crisis, when uh, Cambodia Cambodians seized a U.S. merchant ship and for a time held the crew hostage, and Ford used military force in the hope of uh, to get the, the hostages released. Uh, they were released, though the question has been raised ever since whether that force was needed to, to get them freed. Um, he's trying to promote detente and arms control with the Soviet Union. He's dealing with With economic issues, uh, a growing recession, particularly during his last months in office, he's concerned about America's energy independence, particularly following the energy crisis that hit the United States earlier uh, when OPEC uh, embargoed U.S. oil shipments to the United States. There's a financial crisis in New York City, where New York City is unable to pay its bills and looks like it's at risk of defaulting on its payments. And there's so many things he has to deal with.  … and and trying to deal with them all, while at the same time dealing with the fallout from the pardon, dealing with questions regarding his image, which I'm happy to talk about later, especially when we talk about the election. Um, It becomes very, very hard for him to deal with all these things, plus we have to throw in two other things in the mix. He has a – in his own party, he's having to deal with a conservative wing that's becoming much more influential. And then he have to deal with a Democratic-controlled Congress that has moved – that has become even more strongly controlled by Democrats after 1974 when the so-called Watergate babies entered Congress and began seeking to make additional reforms to the way that Congress as well as the US were run. So trying to handle all of these issues… Uh, was very difficult for him. I, I think one thing that could be said about this time uh, – we're not going into too much more detail here. We're talking about really a time of transition. Um, I've done work on Jimmy Carter as well. And one thing about the 1970s is we're seeing the beginning of the end of New Deal liberalism and the growing rise of this conservatism that's coming out of the 1960s. And this transition is taking place during the 1970s, and Ford is one of the presidents having to, who's having to deal with this and figuring out how to do so uh, while maintaining as much as possible uh, his own beliefs regarding uh, moderate conservatism.
1: You made reference to his image, and, and I, want, I want to talk about that because it's always struck me as one of the... Ironies of, of Gerald Ford, that you have this young man who was uh, an athlete, who uh, was a, a skier, who, uh, you know, he was he was very he was vigorous and, and, and talented. He could have potentially become a professional football player. And yet it's how quickly he develops that that stumble bump image. That it becomes uh, so famously pilloried uh, in in and uh, uh, mocked on uh, Saturday Night Live and and becomes sort mm-hmm. of defining a, a, meta, a, a this in, uh, unfairly defining metaphor for for Gerald Ford as a person.
0: I say that image is the umbrella under which everything else plays and helps us understand why Ford lost the election in 1976. Um. Lyndon Johnson I'll, – I'll use the, the, un, the, the censored version of what he said. Lyndon Johnson once said that Gerald Ford is so dumb he can't ch- walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, he actually used a different word other than uh, walk, but I won't, I won't say the word. Uh, um, <laughs> the, the, I, what, what I argue is that Gerald Ford falling on the stairs of Air Force One – which of course then leads everyone to say this guy's a stumble bum, added to Chevy Chase's portrayal of Ford and Senate lives, Live, added to the Nixon pardon, added to a terribly poor comment he made during a debate with Carter when he said there was no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe. All those things led to the image of an individual who was intellectually vacuous and who whose intellectual weakness played into his physical weakness, a physical weakness that explained why it was he tripped, he fell, he couldn't ski properly. And so people forgot that this was an individual who was an avid and very good skier, who was a swimmer, who had had the opportunity to play professional football. But because he was intellectually weak, because he was physically weak, he came to be seen as someone who just wasn't up for the job. And I think that that whole idea of image is ultimately what cost him in 1976.
1: It it it, it seems that in that respect, what he was dealing with was a challenge that was similar to that of many vice presidents who take over because of uh, death, death. Uh, you know, people like say, uh John Tyler or, or, or Andrew Johnson or uh Calvin Coolidge or Harry Truman in the sense that they're they're they they have to they have no they might have uh been elected a, a, on a ticket, but they still don't really have a defined image in front of the American people. And Ford had the misfortune of of not even having had that introduction in a national campaign, but then he's being defined by all of these popular images at a time when you're seeing this declining skepticism and lack of respect for uh, the the presidents who occupied the Oval Office.
0: Absolutely. And one of the thing that hurts him as well is he never provided a vision for the nation. He never gave the nation a bigger picture of where he wanted to take it. He used once the term new realism. Had he taken that idea and developed it, explained what it meant, where he was going to take the country, that could have made the difference. It would have given the American people a better understanding of what it was he was trying to do. We we have to keep in mind that despite all of the attacks on his image – he did not lose the election of Jimmy Carter by a large margin, and I think that having a vision could have helped him. But but Gerald Ford, as I mentioned in that earlier quote from Melvin Laird, really had trouble coming up with the idea of a vision. He could talk about policy proposals. He could talk about individual initiatives and what he planned on doing – But he never seemed able to place them under a larger umbrella, um, into a larger idea that Americans could grasp. Um, New Deal or Fair Deal, Great Society, Compassionate Conservatism, Change. He never talked about those things, and so all Americans got was just a list of initiatives without any better understanding of what it all meant. What was – if Ford was elected in his own right… Where does he plan on taking us? What is his larger plan for the country? Americans never got that. So that too could play into his, him being seen seen as intellectually weak because someone who was more more intelligent, the argument could be made, would have had such a vision.
1: And yet, as you mentioned, he came very close to beating Jimmy Carter, and he did, in fact, mm-hmm. defeat one of the most talented politicians of the time, Ronald Reagan, in the Republican primary. I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate a bit upon that 1976 election and how he was able to enjoy considerable successes before uh, his defeat by, at the hands of Carter. Well, success has been at a price. Um, <clears throat> Ronald Reagan
0: posed a very serious challenge to Ford. Ford made the mistake of not believing Reagan was going to be a serious problem for him, but but Reagan was able to play on to a variety of things. One of them, of course, was this growing conservative shift taking place in the country, but also he took advantage of um, Ford's talk of turning the Panama Canal over to Panama. He used that very effectively in North Carolina during the primary there and won that state. And up to that point, Reagan had not been doing well uh, in the race for the nomination. After North Carolina, uh, support started coming in both in terms of votes and money, and Ford began to realize that he had poo-pooed Reagan too much. This this guy was going to be a serious challenge. Um, and it came down to the to the convention. Um, the two men went to the Republican National Convention. Neither of them having the num- the the requisite number of delegates to win the nomination. Here Reagan made a big mistake by choosing a, a guy named Schweitzer as his running mate. Schweitzer was someone who was seen as a member of the liberal wing of the Republican Party, and that angered some conservatives who had – who then decided to shift their vote over to Ford. The, Missi- the delegation from Mississippi is the best example of that. So Ford was able to beat Reagan in a very close race, and we have to keep in mind that the, the, the challenge from Reagan was strong enough that it forced Ford to devote not just uh, money but also a lot of time to that effort. He could not focus his attention on on uh, Jimmy Carter. It was the same kind of problem Jimmy Carter had in 1980 when he dealt with a challenge from Edward Kennedy and therefore couldn't devote his attention to Ronald Reagan. Once Ford secured the nomination, now we can focus on Carter, who had at that point a very large lead uh, for the presidency. But Ford was able to chip away at it little by little by pointing out that Carter would would, uh, be vague on some issues or seem to flip-flop on issues. Carter didn't help himself when he gave a um an interview to Playboy magazine in which he said that he had lusted in his heart that was something that didn't really help him uh that hurt him among um more religious individuals in the country but it, it wasn't enough Ford still made enough errors especially that comment regarding Soviet domination of Eastern Europe or no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe that hurt him plus the economy began to go sour Uh, by the time of the election. And so Americans began to say to themselves, we we want somebody else.
1: So Ford leaves the presidency in January of 1977, having lost the election. And yet, as you described, it it didn't necessarily have to be the end of his political career, that, that Ford did consider the idea of a comeback.
0: I mentioned in the book, uh, Ford, Ford said not long after he lost the election, uh, "Old habits die hard." He was still at his at his base a politician, and he was still a workaholic, uh, and he still considered uh, he still got he still being involved in politics. He would still go out and stump for individuals from the Republican Party, and he did consider a run for the presidency in 1980. And then when he decided that's not going to happen considered being Ronald Reagan's running mate in 1980. And the main reason why that ended up falling through is that Ford wanted more power as a vice president than Reagan was prepared to give him. But even after that, Ford still remained very much involved in politics, stumping for individuals, uh, criticized the, the, the Democratic Party, but also demonstrated a greater willingness to criticize his own party, especially as he began to move further to the right…
1: We've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Uh, sure. I've just finished a book on the environment. and It's called The Environment and in International History. Uh, it covers the uh, looks at um, environmental diplomacy from the turn of the 20th century up until the present. So I cover all kinds of issues, whether it be climate change or whaling or ha- the, what to do with hazardous waste. Uh, issues like that. And it's a book
1: that I hope will be out next year. Well, it sounds like a very interesting book. I I wish you the best of luck with that. I wish you the best of luck with this one as well. Thank you. Uh, Scott, I've 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 appreciated talking about my book. Oh, we appreciate having you. Thank you for joining us here today at the New Books Network. and I hope you have a wonderful day. Uh, You too.